Hey, everybody. Welcome to the SCTV Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Delaney, and I'm here with Brendan Sokler. Hey, Brendan. Hey, Michael. How's it going? It's going great. So, today's the big Harold Ramis tribute. Yes, we do a very deep dive into the whole oeuvre of Harold. Yes, and it hap- we happened to record this on Groundhog Day. We did, which was pretty cute. Completely by chance. I like that serendipity. It's the kind of thing you might plan, but we didn't anyway. So, uh, and to talk about Harold Ramis, of course, our guest is uh, Andrew Secunda. I go way back with Secunda. We met in UCB classes, and we put together the legendary improv group, The Swarm which uh, still exists to this day. And, uh, of course, Andy went on to write for Late Night with Conan O'Brien and then the Goldbergs. Andy's a true sketcheteer, a real dedicated sketch comedian, and he's a big Ramus fan and knows a lot about Ramus and his work. Yes, he is an encyclopedia of Harold Ramus knowledge. Uh, and we do a pretty fantastic dive on it. Which is why we're able to stay on topic this time. This is very true. It is something that I think the listeners are really going to enjoy. So with that, shall we kick it? Okay. Let's listen to our conversation with Andrew Secunda about the great Harold Ramis. Okay, three, two, one, here we go. Uh, Secunda, are you there? I'm here. Hey, Andy. Is that a boat? I heard it too. It sounded like a foghorn. Whoa, are you doing this down at the wharf, Delaney? I'm on the docks. I'm. uh, (laughs) That is the the worst place to do a podcast, I can tell you that. It's the only place I could get a studio. (laughs) All right, that's got to be why you're getting a good rate. Um, There's all manner of sound down at the wharf. If you hear sloshing, ignore it, and uh, there'll be a lot of sounds of gulls. Yeah, actually, I'm. This, I'm. Uh, this is my first show out of Bro Bro Studios in beautiful Echo Park in Los Angeles. Mm, I'm nice. here with Chad Kruger, the maestro who runs the joint. And uh, sweet. So it's a little different here. Um, w- what city are you in? I'm in West Hollywood, California, with the uh, well, not with the upper crust, but near the upper crust, nearer than you are. You don't want to be too close to the upper crust. You want to be nah. close enough, but not that close. They're too stuffy, as we as we will learn from all of Ramus's films. I don't want to be with the snobs. I want to be with the slobs. That's true. That is, if there's one theme about his movies, it's sticking it to the man. <laughs> That's right. Uh, hey, we're here with Brendan Sokler, too, of course. Hello, Brendan. Hey, gang. How's it going? <laughs> oh, Brendan got caught with his mic down. I did get caught with my mic down. It was terribly embarrassing. <laughs> Sorry. I told him to it's mute it more often, and then I sprung one on him. How dare you? So, hey, we're talking about Harold Ramis, aren't we? We Wait, sure are. Is that a surprise? <laughs> yeah, I was, I was <laughs> gathering all my notes. Oh, no, this was the Ramis show. I know. Oh, I dropped um, all my notes, too. Oh, no. All my preparation. I talk about what's going on in the stock market. I've been researching all night. <laughs> um, no, what, one of my... A, a very uh, important figure in, in my, um, my comedy education and... Uh, and fandom. Me too. And the funny thing is, I was becoming a huge SCTV fan at the same time I was becoming a Ramus fan. 
And I didn't even know he was part of the show. I, I, I didn't experience the show in the 70s. I was a latecomer. Because you didn't, because you hadn't seen those episodes, or you just didn't process that he was sort of one of them? I hadn't seen them. I didn't even know he worked on the show. He just seemed like he was one of that gang, and I accepted him. Oh, I see. Um, so you oh, didn't he, separate him. Here's what I wanted to bring up. Go ahead. Um, oddly, today is Groundhog Day. I uh, yeah, it's perfect. Really, through no planning of our own, I just floated a couple dates today and tomorrow, and tomorrow turned out to be bad for me. So, organically, the Ramus tribute has fallen on Groundhog Day. The weirdest thing was yesterday was also Groundhog's Day. I think you're that right. A, that was a that was a really <laughs> embarrassing bit. That, no, that, it did make me think, though. It gave me pause for thought. Yeah, I think the problem is both you and I are so disoriented that our first thought would be, maybe maybe that did happen. I don't I kinda, know what's going on. I kind of bought it at first. I was like, fuck, it's not the real day, but oh well. <laughs> maybe I'm, I'm, I'm so ill-informed about world events that it's possible that Groundhog Day did happen twice. And on the um, scale of world events, Groundhog Day marks pretty low on the on that totem pole. Yeah, perhaps the, the least significant holiday of them all. Oh, I don't know. What about Flag Day? What? Uh oh, that oh, ain't did I just say something. That ain't patriotic, Kuns. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. Now you stepped on it there, my friend. You're on your own. <laughs> you know, on, look, you're on I'm your a proud own American, on that one. But what do we really do? You're on your own. <laughs> I'm leaving you Veterans out to dry day, on that Veterans one. Veterans Day, I get, but uh. <laughs> so Andy, where does Groundhog Day sit with you in terms of the Ramus canon? Um, you know, I didn't. I have the experience with many movies that when they come out, I don't like them, um, and it's because I look at them as a as someone who makes things myself, and so I ah, they should have done this, and they should have done that, and this was. Bullshit and all this stuff. So I obviously, you know, no self-respecting comedy fan can say they don't like Bill Murray. Uh, so I obviously love Bill Murray. Love Harold Ramis, um, in particular those two, and uh, so much good stuff in it. But I think I was bothered at the time that there was no reveal um, about why he's trapped. Now that I've seen the spectrum of the entire genre that Groundhog Day has, um, you know, spawned, I'm far more uh, respectful of everything that was accomplished in that film. And I, and I really value it much more. So at the time, you, you didn't think they set him up uh, enough as a prick to be that hateful that, that he would be no, sentenced? No, I thought characterization-wise, I thought they, they did okay. I think I just wanted more of the... I wanted the supernatural explanation or scientific explanation or how he gets out of it or, um, you know, the, the thing that would be the obvious thing to supply that, in fairness to the film, is really brilliant that they don't supply because it's it sort of leaves it as like that's not the important thing the important thing is the characterization and the concept and how we play it out comedically and uh you know having some something like the movie pig where there's a where there's a, a you know a fortune teller in a in a machine that makes it happen like why do we need that they, they were right and i was wrong Right. Sometimes you need the device. Sometimes you don't. They just left it. It's very sketch comedy to just leave it out. Like, just trust that the audience is going to accept it. Um, Just sort of play out the comedic concept and then trail off and leave the sketch. 
I never got too deep into why Bill Murray had problems with the movie, which famously he did, or it caused some kind of rift with those guys. And I'm not really interested in talking about that, but I wonder what it, uh, maybe your reservations with the movie, were they at all similar, do you think, as, as Bill Murray's? My understanding is that Bill Murray's were, were more about the, uh, the emotional depth of the film, I think. And, um, and I think that uh, I think that Ramis just wanted to make sure that that Murray hit the comedic beats, you know, and just did the. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I don't know what the why this makes me think of it, but like I remember Matthew Broderick talking about that now when he does. You know, he's he's such a big fixture of the theater and has always been. When he goes on stage every night, he does something to like he's such a uh, a comedy you know surgeon that he goes on he knows how to nail it and he'll go on stage and intentionally try and mess up the timing for himself to make it interesting for himself and to me <laughs> as someone who you know who's just a I you know I, I have such a, an affinity for perfect comedic timing and nailing the joke exactly the way it's you know the music of the joke right I that really offends me um, so uh, uh, you know I understand you got to do what you got to do as an artist to uh, but I uh-huh. my guess is there was something in the range of that th- that that was the distinction between them that like obviously Bill could go in and just crush every moment because he's a he's a you know he's a superhero um and he would want to go in and play it in an unexpected way or play it in a weird way or play it in a way that wasn't necessarily the funniest way and he's dealing with you know one of the one of the people on earth who knows more than anyone else exactly how funny he can make it and how like they speak the same language that's that's to me what one of the things that made Harold Ramis um the giant that he was in the comedy world was he was uh he's like the equivalent of a composer conductor for comedy like he could hear what the particularly for for specific actors what they were um supposed to sound like and what what the the best version comedically of their voice was and who did he know better than bill murray so if you're sitting there and you know oh i could make this scene the funniest scene that has come out in the last 10 years because I know how to how how to work with this athlete, you know, virtuoso, whatever you want to call him. And he's intentionally kind of like, I just want to go for a more grounded scene and I want to, you know, just take it down and play the emotion more than the comedy. I would find that enormously frustrating. Although, obviously, I respect Bill Murray's perspective too of like he's trying to keep it um, you know, grounded and organic and and weighty. Yeah. Uh, I see both sides of that equation. I see both sides of the Broderick equation, too. I think I come down siding with Ramis on Groundhog Day because it's such a perfectly symmetrical movie, and the beats, the way the beats slot in so perfectly, it's hard to resist um, things like that. And Bill Murray definitely got to play those emotional tones that I it sounds like he was going for in Groundhog Day, particularly with Broken Flowers. I don't know if you saw that one. But uh, he did a lot of exploring in that realm afterwards. Maybe, I don't know if Groundhog Day was the perfect place for that, especially since Andy McDowell was not a virtuoso. I mean, she's fine. She did good. <laughs> she did fine in that role. But yeah, um, It's interesting that Ramis went back to her for multiplicity. 
I didn't like multiplicity. I thought it was too soon, too similar that he was doing another. It just felt like it was, especially with her being cast in that, felt too much like a Groundhog Day recapture with the fantasy element, the way that Groundhog Definitely. Day had that, such a that strong... That was the intention. Maybe even maybe even on the level of kind of like, you know, almost like a, uh, a an old studio system kind of movies where you're like, yeah, hey, we'll put Clark Gable and... Um, you know, Joan Crawford back together. Oh, it's sort yeah. of like that kind of vibe, except they're they're slotting in Michael Keaton, which is about the I can't even think of anybody else who would even be close to Bill Murray. And it's like Michael Keaton is is about as close as you're gonna get if you're going for a Bill Murray vibe. I'm not Ke- wrong about that, right? Is there anybody else? I oh, think it should that's also too hard be to say. I think it should also be noted that both Bill Murray and Michael Keaton, Michael Keaton actually did get to play Batman, but there was a period of time where I believe Reitman was attached to direct and Bill Murray was going to be as Bruce Wayne for just talking one-to-one. Really? Yeah. For Batman? For Batman. Crazy town. Um, I also think I read, and who knows how dependable you know the, the rumors are, that was it? Wasn't um, Groundhog Day offered to Michael Keaton? Or was it? Was, yeah. I think it might have been. I was, it was either that or Multiplicity was offered to Bill Murray, which I guess would make more sense. But I think it was, it was Groundhog Day because that surprised me. But then I thought, oh, I guess it's coming off of, you know, he's still coming off of Batman. But also that's probably just every, every time that Bill Murray is in a movie and it was offered to somebody else first, it had to be that they just couldn't reach him on the phone, and then he finally drifted around, and they're like, all right, forget everything else. We got Bill Murray. Right. Um, Well, you know, if Multiplicity was actually a better movie, no one would care that much if it was a carbon copy. You just start thinking about that stuff once it doesn't work. And they made the the flaw of going for the rule of fours, which is not a thing. (laughs) You're saying in terms of the, uh, well, the, the, too many Keatons. Sorry to interrupt, is, but too many Ke- Three Keatons is plenty, oh, Keatons. This is a really interesting comedic question, uh, Delane's, because is, is it the rule of three or the rule of four? Because it, the comedic premise is played three times. There are four Keatons because we're counting the original Keaton. I hear what you say. I hear what you say, but at the end of the day, four Keatons was just, it, it was, four's a crowd. Yeah. yeah. I hear eight is enough, but uh, Steve Mecca, our <laughs> tech on this, uh, just sent me that for the role of Phil Connors, Chevy Chase, Tom Hanks, and Michael Keaton were considered. Oh, there you go. And it should also be noted, as Andy brought up about reaching Bill Murray on the phone, for the listeners who may not know, Bill Murray didn't have an agent. He had a hotline where people could pitch him projects very famously that he would sometimes answer. Yeah. was was, Was it an 800 number? I believe so, yes. I think it was. Yeah, oh, Sofia Coppola, I think, left a lot of messages on there to get him to right, do... Right, that's how she got him in Lost in Translation. Yes. You couldn't pay me to stay here one more night. Swear that there is no check you could write that might tempt me to stay and wake up in the morning and... There's nothing more depressing than small town USA and small Punxsutawney on Groundhog Day. You brought up, like, what is the quintessential Harold Ramis movie? What does that look like? And and I'm, I'm really thinking about it. 
because so many directors have a kind of a stamp. And I right. feel like Ramis did have a stamp. I, I think the best stamp anyone can have is quality. And the more different your stuff looks l- like the last piece or the next piece, the better. Because, I mean, a Tim Burton movie, you can spot a mile away. They, uh-huh. they all have a lot and too much in common with a lot of visual trickery and things. And I, if there is a quintessential Ramis look or feel... Oddly, it does feel like it feels like it's that kind of stripes Caddyshack, a little low budget, really just right. plop the camera down and let the actors do the work kind of shot on film, uh, stripped down simplicity and just hit the beats, hit the beats well, and move on. Well, there are so many things I I feel connected to him uh, for, uh, uh, you know, in in like my version being like the the least successful version of him but but just coming from improv being primarily a writer having a little bit of acting and sort of playing it for all it's worth but kind of not being up to the level of you know the superstars but enjoying that side and the thing you're talking about of the way that he set up the camera is really interesting because he that's sort of playing to his strengths of set up the scene you know, the, maybe the quintessential one being the, I know he wrote last minute, is like, oh, I don't have a scene with Chevy Chase and Bill Murray and, and Caddyshack. Yeah. He just sort of writes it, and then it's them talking to each other. Yeah. And it's just hearing the music of them interacting and where are the beats and setting up the camera so you cover it. And it's just knowing that that's where the magic is in that scene and not doing anything special because what's special is what they're saying and how they're interacting. That's the way the Monty Python went about there. Uh, went about Holy Grail. I thought the early stuff. It's hard to say early stuff when you only make three movies. So in their in their first movie, it was really that crude. They just let the performances do the work, right? And let the timing come from the actors, not from the editing room, right? Although you can see the push and pull between Terry Jones, who was probably more on that side, and Terry Gilliam, who would do weird, intense fog shots of castles and all sorts of stuff like that. Gilli- Gilliam spent most of his energy on smoke. Just <laughs> yeah. mist. The mist work is unbelievable in It's Holy really Grail. great mist work, yes. <laughs> and then he moved on to Jabberwocky, which had even more mist. I mean, it's it was his thing. He was the mist guy for a while. That's true. Business. It's true. Um, Until he became the, the uh, obvious miniatures guy. When they made Stephen King's The Fog, they said it would be nothing without Terry Gilliam. <laughs> they weren't going to make it because Terry Gilliam wasn't going to be involved. <laughs> he ended up getting in the credits just in special thanks. <laughs> sure. He was a consultant. He was a missed consultant. Yeah. Um, was, I think he, a lot of his biggest arguments with the studios were that they wanted to cut his mist in a different way than he wanted to present it. Auteurs. Yeah. What are you going to do? Andy, you, I, I, I wanted <laughs> <Useful> you. Useful digression. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you. I was pushing you to f- yes. try to follow a kind of a Ramus-ish path at one point because I uh-huh. felt like it was like this. Ramus knew he was not cut out to be an actor. He had all these talents, acting being one of them, and yeah. he really used what 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 acting skills he had. In a right. way that made him recognizable. It's big. I think it's a big deal when people can put a face to a name. Yeah. And I think that might have helped him 
to get his writing and directing going, that people knew who he was from either from SCTV or Stripes. Later, once Ghostbusters came out, I think Ramis had a lot of steam. And um, when we used to work together a lot when we were young. I think you were in your late 20s. And yeah. uh, I was really pushing you to be more of a performer. And you yeah. were way more into the writing and producing and creating. And yeah. uh, I, I wanted you to pull a Ramus where you like really made performing a big part of your thing that would then feed into your writing and directing. Do you remember that? I do. And I appreciated that support because you certainly you were the only person that was supporting me in that direction. <laughs> no rep of mine was saying, we got to get you acting more. Um, oh, remember, because... I, gave, I gave you an empowerment gift once. It was a turnip. That's right. You did. I gave and you I a turnip. It, as you said. Yeah. yeah. I said you had to take it home and cook it and eat it. Yeah, and, and it would help me, you because it was, it was the, it was the the what is it a root? What is it? What kind of what is it? Vegetable? Turnip um, is a root, and it happens to be the food of the actor. Yeah, I really was touched by that because I was a that was after the two Andes, and I was a nervous wreck through the whole thing. And the, uh, Steinbeck says the important thing about uh, gifts is that it's all about the giver. And you validated yeah. the gift by eating the turnip, and I appreciated that a lot in turn. Because it was kind of a weird present, because it put the onus on you to prepare and cook <laughs> the most bland vegetable known. I enjoyed it. I don't remember what I paired it with. I must have paired it with something. Or, I don't know, knowing me, who knows? I might have stood over the stove and just ate a boiled turnip. Well, if you put enough butter and salt in something, even chicken face tastes good. Welcome to the Turnip Podcast again. Uh, our sponsor is just the root vegetable turnip. <laughs> Hi, we're going to take a bit of a turn here on Turnip Week. We'll be talking about parsnips. So some of you may want to tune out now because you've been duly warned. Check in next week. We'll be back to turnips, we promise. I try to cook um, parsnips every which way, and they suck. I'm sorry. I've given them such a chance. What is the taste distinction between parnips and turnips? Imagine a carrot that's really hard to get cooked to the right um, consistency and also has no fucking flavor. Sounds, sounds sorry. promising. <laughs> <laughs> sorry to the parsnips. Okay. My We're gonna apologies. Ch change, change channel back to the SCTV podcast. Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, what's interesting is looking at his, his, uh, his sort of lineup. So he did. He wrote. Let me. Let me. Uh, so are you reading from? Animal are you reading House. from the internet? Is that is that against the law? No, the but rules? I mean, I, but I have all See, that crap memorized. Oh, okay. Well, I was just it was just like the the lineup of the movies he wrote and then sort of and appeared in and directed, and it's just like it's amazing that he did Caddyshack just before he did Stripes. I didn't never realize that. That is, what a run, Caddyshack. Shack? directed first he writes animal house and then he does a punch up on meatballs which probably makes reitman you know uh, sort of put him in stripes and what a great parlaying that is like if i ever could have gotten that going that would have been my dream um he fought his, to, i'm sorry to interrupt he fought yeah. his way into stripes oh he did i thought that reitman kind of knowing that he was going to be able to write for Bill Murray and do Punch-Up and everything, that Reitman was thinking more like a producer and put him in himself. He fought his way in? I don't know the exact details, but I remember hearing Ramis talk about that 
and other people had a lot of ideas about actors that would be better for that role and he he really wanted him he really wanted to be in that and i thought that was a key move for him which for sure he, he, he probably would not have been able to do ghostbusters um if he hadn't done stripes for some reason without question without question if you don't have that established in a successful movie with bill murray then you don't get into ghostbusters oh let um, me add and it, let yeah, me add ahead. this I heard that the boys did not want to let Ramus play Egon on account of he smiles oh. all the time, which is true. If you're an SCTV fan, you know he grinned through every scene, and he grinned, through, he grinned through stripes, too. And they're like, no, Harold, you can't be in this one. And he made a pact that the Egon character would not smile. And he is doesn't... that why Egon is Egon? Or they just knew Egon was going to be deadpan, and then they, and then, and then they weren't going to let him play it? I'm not sure, but it, that's part. Of, I, that's definitely part of how that character evolved, and um, it's true he does. Finally, in Ghostbusters 2, they're all having a laugh, and Egon attempts to laugh. He kind of goes, ha, 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 ha. He sort of just affects laughter. You can tell it's a strain sure. for him. <laughs> it's so interesting because he th that is such a quint the quintessential Ramus role, Egon, that you... You would almost think of him, but actually, even more in interviews, even looking back on some of the interviews, he sort of smiles politely, but he seems like someone who's more deadpan and not as smiley. So I wonder if it was just kind of performance nerves that made him smile on in uh, in the sketches. I think it's just he's just got one of those faces that his you, you hear the term resting bitch face. He had resting grin face. He just he's <laughs> he's got a look that. Something's amusing that he knows about, and he's probably going to tell true. you, but he might not. Uh, that is his angle, I think, if you want to sort of boil it down. And in some ways, it's maybe why he, you know, he's always, he's a delight to watch in the SCTV sketches. But in fairness, he's not up to the, up to the level of the rest of the the, uh, the cast. Like, I love watching him, but, and I think part of it might be there's that extra level of commitment that's not quite there because he's looking at how funny the scene is. That's a disease that writers have. Yeah. The writers have a hard time being fully in the scene. They're always a little out of it. Like when you watch Norm MacDonald trying to do an ensemble scene on SNL, it's like one of these things is not like the other. They just don't that have is, that depth of training and believability. That is true. But, of course, that can also be... A positive, and I think also being a writer, uh, actor can be a positive. <laughs> just to defend uh, the uh, the slot that I'm in, no, um, there's a lot of great writer actors. <laughs> there's of a, there's plenty of them. What's wrong with writing? I I think they're the best ones. If if you wanna if you wanna you want the truth, <laughs> um, but it's just like having worked with uh, Patton Oswalt. Drop. Um, there's a uh, the, he does. The and this is just on voiceovers on the on the Goldbergs, but but I was in charge of that, and it was okay. like he would do a version, and I would have a note, and I learned to never give him a note because he has the writer ear, so he would do it, he would understand the comedy of every single thing, and then he would make his own adjustment. Right. So um, I think there's that's the flip side. Now, granted, Pat Noswald is also a you know. A, a skilled and uh, and talented actor, independent of of his writing ability. 
That's nice when you work with an actor that you trust enough to just ask them to do it again, and they're going to make the adjustment on their own. Oh my gosh, what a what a dream! (laughs) But I do find, like, actually, in general, even looking at the because this having been the 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 first show that I worked on for this long, early on, because I would tend to be the writer on set. Um, I think because I have more of an interest in directing and, and like giving people notes, uh, which is always welcome from both the crew <laughs> and the actors. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I would uh, I, early on I would be, especially with the kids like there was you know um, um, Wendy McClendon Covey who was obviously you know. Um, a power hitter and you know she would always do something funny in every take a lot of the kids they would be incredibly talented naturally but they wouldn't have the ear of what the rhythm of the jokes were supposed to be so i would give them a lot of notes and you know if i was away from set for a while and i came back um you know on like whatever it was the next season for one i wrote it was astonishing that they had learned and built up the ability to, within their characters, nail every single joke without mm. notes. So I think that's how you... that That's when, when, to me, the crossover point is of someone being a pro. And so mm. it's interesting to circle back to think about being on set as Ramus and, uh, and Bill Murray going, you know, I know I can do it. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I think a lot of actors, a lot of actors of Bill Murray's stature say, "Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do that." Yeah. Um, hey, Andy, here's the. I'm going to switch gears. Go ahead. Uh, you met Harold Ramis, right? I sure did. You were there. I was. There. I could have met Ramis, but you know what? This was um, at the Aspen Comedy Festival, and the SCTV reunion was there that year. And yeah. we happened to be there. I was there with the show you wrote with Andrew Daly. And right. uh, so the we, we got the to hit be- of the festival, the two Andes. They hit you right, anything. They, they hit it. Well, you had more merch, though, than anyone. <laughs> we did have the best merch. There's we no question. We didn't win best sketch, but we had, on them. we had best merch and most merch. I think that's what people <laughs> so, commented on, actually. We all, all of us, Daly was there, too. We all targeted... An SCTV member that we really wanted to meet. Daly wanted Did to he meet go Martin after Short. Short. He yeah. went after Martin Short. Yeah. I went after Gene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. Right. And you targeted Harold Ramis. So I I decided I didn't want to be a pest, and I wasn't going to go out and approach Ramis either. But yeah. I did. I, I photographed you meating him. Yeah. Oh, and I, I had. This, I got to dig that out. You, I have it. Ever, it's it, on oh my man. Facebook. It's deep buried in my Facebook page somewhere, and it's got a yeah. little caption. It's you. It's an over-the-shoulder yeah. shot of you, so you can see Harold pretty good, and he's looking down at a piece of merch that you gave him. It's a. <laughs> it's a Whenever two people Andes. take pictures with celebrities, they always say, "Hey, can you get an over-the-shoulder shot of me with this celebrity?" <laughs> I, want, I want to make sure you really get the back of my head, and then see the picture of the celebrity that everyone's already seen. You can tell it's you, but I really wanted to get him with that hat. And the little yeah. caption I put in was, Ramus unhappily accepts a two Andes hat from Secunda. <laughs> it really, it really was what it was. I think I gave him my, but I think the problem was that we were all on stage and the reason we had, we had snuck on stage because we were performing something, then they were on stage and then... 
the rest of the people talking to them were supposed to be press, right? And we were yes. just like, I don't care. We want to meet these people. So he thought I was like going to take out a tape recorder and start going. So when you know, with your beginning of your career, and I just started to ramble about you know uh, what he meant to me and everything. And you could see the eyes, the light go out of his eyes immediately. <laughs> I'm talking to a fan, and uh, and then I gave him a hat. This is a hat. Um, and um, I remember what show. he said right when he yeah. gave him the hat. I remember what he said. What it was like this. <laughs> he, made, he made a couple utterances that sounded like Bert from Ernie and Bert. Sure. <laughs> I guess I guess that's appropriate. Uh, me meeting Harold Ramis that that's what the uh, that's what the interaction would have been. Um, was <laughs> me imposing and him being vaguely uncomfortable. Come um, on, he's used to it. He's been imposed upon by much pestier people than us. Yes. Well, certainly from many different uh, perspectives. And I also, I had just read in preparation for this um, um, Ghostbusters Daughter, his daughter's uh, book. And I wanted just to read from, it too. I haven't read it yet. From all... From all accounts, and certainly her account, uh, just a very sweet man, you know. Obviously, she goes into the flaws of everyone in her life, including herself, in great detail. So that's all okay. fascinating. But but nothing that was, like, too damning. It was all, you know, he's just all a very well-intentioned, sweet person. Um, so that was good to hear, um, which isn't always what you hear about Mari, uh, which is uh, unfortunate. But uh, I I met Murray too, and actually Murray was much warmer to me than Ramus. So what are you gonna do? Everybody well, has their own experiences. Did you meet Bill Murray in a professional setting? It was the greatest. I went to the WGA Awards on the East Coast, and um, they uh, every year they have somebody who's like, if you're a diehard comedy fan, then you're like, oh, this is this is cool. Um, but it's nobody that anybody would care about. Like, you know, Rich, you know, Al Franken did it one year and he was very funny. And, uh, Mort <laughs> Saul did it another year <laughs> this is when I was at, at late night with Conan and we would always, and all the, cause all the, all the cool kids were on the West coast. So this was the East coast WGA awards. And then one year, I believe it was supposed to be Belzer that was going to host. And we were like, all right, well, it's going to be Belzer. And then so there's start rumor started that it was going to be Bill Murray, and I was just like, it's like seeing like a character you you love die on a show. I was just in denial, like, no, nah, it's going to be a dream sequence. This is there's no way Bill Murray's going. <laughs> and then it is Bill Murray, and he was virtually because Belzer, I think, got sick. Um, I think it was Belzer, and uh, he was virtually everything you dream about Bill Murray being in that situation he was loose he controlled the room he was hilarious he was ad-libbing off of every presenter it was just a dream it was one of the greatest performances i've ever seen in my life um and when you get to see bill murray perform for god's sakes and then at the end i went up and i shook his hand and i uh and i said i don't understand why you've never they've never let you host the oscars and for anyone who works for the oscar committee uh, he said, they never asked me. I'd be happy to do it. So somebody make that happen. Uh, yeah, maybe. He's, he doesn't do a lot. of. He's not a big hosty guy. 
No. I mean, you know, it's also Bill Murray, so he might just be saying that. And then, then yeah, you get you, a billion messages on his 800 number and he never calls you back. But uh, you got him on a good night. I did. Uh, hey, hey, Secunda, let, let's play a clip. We've got one from Heavy Metal. Did you like the movie Heavy Metal? Did yeah, you see it? Yeah, it was one where, yes, it was, it was, I was obsessed with it because I'm also an animation head and I just, I loved it. And it was, it's really right in that zone, actually, of that Reitman, Ramis uh, kind of tone. Um, but of course, it has a bunch of sci-fi, and as a young man, nudity. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's just violence and just awesome, cool fantasy stuff. And and but in addition, it has that kind of improv-y, off-the-cuff uh, comedy. Uh, John Candy in it, and and uh, uh, Eugene, and, and Eugene Levy. Eugene Levy just. And just uh, clearly, Reitman was just letting them run, and then cutting it together later. It was fantastic. Reitman, in my he opinion. did, he it's, did. It's a weird that, movie. Just, just so I'm being straightforward, it's a weird, oddball, you know, uh, early '80s movie. You know what? Let's play the clip. Yes, he from, did Ghostbusters too. From the animated feature, it came out around I don't know 1980 or something. So this is a scene where Eugene Levy. And Harold Ramis are playing two aliens who are really high. They snorted some kind of space dust, and they're trying to land their spacecraft. You okay to land this thing? No problem, man. I think you're going a little high, man. It's okay, man. If there's one thing I know, it's how to drive when I'm stoned. It's like you know your perspective's fucked, so you just gotta let your hands work the controls as if you're straight. Even though your perspective is fucked, right. your hands know what to do. And right. You just, you just let them do the work. That is someone who has gotten high a lot, who uh, was participating in, in writing that scene. <laughs> it um, did. It did have a little uh, that 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 little patina of truth to it. Not that uh, it's necessarily true what he's saying, but it's true that people say that shit all the time. <laughs> Uh, just so delightful. And also very kind of a mainstay. Ramus characters, it's interesting looking back at the uh, the SCTV sketches uh, because he has a lot of, there were a lot of recurring characters he did, like the Swami character that are like, he keeps going to that Swami character and it's like, <laughs> you can't do an Indian accent. <laughs> Why is this your go-to? You but know the, what, the pothead character was right in his wheelhouse, and he does that again in Stripes when he's talking to Judge Reinhold. If you guys want to rack up that scene as comparison, that's... I don't think of Swami Banananda as being in, in brown face, because he's not. He's not wearing... Um, he's wearing his usual makeup. And if you remember, the, in the first Swami Banananda bit, his, na he, he, his name is actually Dennis Peterson. He's oh, just a, interesting. He's just a regular white guy who became a swami because he thought it would be a great way to pick up girls. Oh, is that established later, or is that just your theory? No, that's in the second episode of SCTV. Good morning. 
morning, students. I'm the Swami Banananda. Some of you may know me as Dennis Peterson. Now, if you were with me yesterday, remember I was showing you how to squat on a street corner. Today, we're going to work on the flexibility of the legs. Most people are very stiff in the legs. But before I begin, a lot of people have been writing in asking me why I became a Swami. Well, to put it frankly, I thought it would be a good way to meet girls. But it didn't work out that way. But yeah, I w it is interesting the things that are still like, oh, that's that's a valid, even progressive point, and the things that are that are, you know, wildly problematic. But you know, the thing that's interesting to me also, looking back at these sketches, is the distinction on SETV between grounded um, interactions and performances and characters, and the ones that are just these incredibly cartoonish broad you know not just organically coming out of the character but like wiggling eyebrows and crazy faces and and like when it lands and when it's like um you know not it's not organic to what you're doing in the scene you're just you know eugene levy i think is the is the biggest is the biggest uh, criminal in that in that uh, department of uh, as far I'm as just going making super a face. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe maybe yeah. Well, Eugene was a little goofier when they started too. Right. He played a lot of super goofy characters in the first few seasons, and he still did later. And also, Andrea had no problems going over the top anytime. That's a really anywhere. good point. Yeah. But at the same time, those guys were incredible. Um, Capable of really incredibly subtle stuff. Well, that's what's fascinating is both of them, particularly, again, Eugene Levy, if you if you look at him at other parts and also now like in Schitt's Creek and everything, uh, but even, even in that era, some of the biggest laughs I've had are the ones where they were just tiny, subtle asides and quiet performances from him. The, the little moments are always my favorites, often even throwaways, like you brought up in the snooker championships, <laughs> yeah. when he, he cuts to an overhead shot, and all he says is, it's, it's not centered. And it's because it's not. The shot's <laughs> it's not just, centered. It's and it, so it's, great. It's just this poor bastard I calling out so a much. low budget. <laughs> hey, Andy. Yes. We just got a news flash from Chad that... Um, Elmer Bernstein did, in fact, uh, compose the music for Stripes and Ghostbusters. What a giant. I'm, sh I'm sure, among other things. <laughs> it sounded like that was sarcastic, but that's, a, that's quite a career. <laughs> the, the music in Stripes is so good. Not to take so away good. from Ghostbusters. So for it. It's lyrical. It, it's, you know, it's really tough. And actually, I think, I feel like, I could be wrong on this, just to segue into Club Paradise. In Club Paradise, it is too goofy. Whereas Elmer Bernstein's scores uh, are, are you, I feel like getting a lot of shake, he, shaking heads, so maybe people disagree here. Um, but the the, uh, the 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 scores in in Ghostbusters and Stripes are like just lyrical enough that you're it gives you the comedic tone without interfering with the sort of fun genre element. And the boys are telling me it's Steen, and also. I believe he wrote the score for Animal House. I may be wrong, but that has that same... Gra if it wasn't uh, Bernstein, it, it still has that same kind of gravitas. He's very big on the horn section. Very much. Oh, I, yeah. Stripes is very brassy. And of course, it's fed that, that militaristic. And uh, um, yes, he did. Yes, Chad's verifying he did, in fact, uh, compose for Animal House. You know, the Pythons got 
Neil Innes to write the score uh, for Holy Grail, and it ended yeah. up not working, and they replaced it with like standard British drama, Arthurian classical stuff, and it really, really worked. Because, again, it had the gravitas to offset the silliness. Well, I think that's sort of part of the my instinct is always just play it straight, particularly if you're doing something that's that much of a satire, then don't have the music also be satirical. I think that undermines everything. And by the same token, go ahead. You know, I think funny scores is a slippery slope. Now, funny music is different where the the music is upfront funny but when the score is being commenty or cute that that's trouble and i think that's what one of the strengths of SETV which is pretty advanced for its time is the you know i i, I have my i have my issues with some of the these people accepted or you know the, just the g- giants in in comedy history and all amazingly talented but i have my my issues with some of the performances being like cute for cute sake uh sometimes but they always there seem to be a universal aesthetic of let's have the grounding of these parodies be something we're playing off of we're gonna just do the black and white uh super low budget obviously but we're gonna shoot it as much as we can in a, in a tone that sort of seems similar the music will be right the titles will be right and then we'll play within that and uh that's that's a very refined perspective because you go into the 80s and a lot of the comedy isn't even on that level. It's like a, uh, I don't know, it doesn't feel as emotionally connected in a, in a good way, in a way where you're kind of, you're able to sit back and watch the comedy and watch them play out the concepts. Hey, let's show another uh, Ramus obscurity. Now, Heavy Metal was actually released. The scene that we showed from, or that we played from heavy metal. Here's one that wasn't released. This is a deleted scene from High Fidelity, which was that um, John Cusack movie about like record stores and stuff. And Cusack's all tangled up with these relationships with women, and he just cries and cries through the whole movie <laughs> about have, about women and his his exes and top ten lists of songs and women and. All this, so he's he's a it's a fine movie. He does he does good in it, but he's a bit of a crybaby. So here's a scene between John Cusack and his father, played by Harold Ramis. Why is failure the first thing I think about? Sometimes I wish I were my old man. He never had to worry about making Mom's hot all-time top 100 because he was first and last on the list. Pops. Did you ever have to worry about the female orgasm? Do you in fact even know what a female orgasm is? I mean, do you envy me and my sex life? Or does it all seem like just hard work to you? Listen, son, the good fuck wasn't even invented when I was your age. First time I saw a woman naked, I was already married to her. Stop whining about it. Just get on with it. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, I like that scene. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that in that and in Knocked Up, where he plays the, you know, um, Seth another Rogen's, dad. Yeah, he's he's real good at the dad characters, and also I, I, you know, it's not a dad character; it's a guy who's avoiding being a dad. But in Baby Boom, he's good at the sort of I don't know if you call him bland, just sort of straight, everyman, 
not necessarily like he's obviously an affectionate dad character and knocked up, but not necessarily even that uh, likable, but just sort of the guy that you slot in and he's real and he's grounded and um, and there's a connection between him and the other the other the main actor. It's just really he's a good actor. And he's and a good guy. Yeah, you're right. Those he's little a good roles. guy, and he's a good actor. Yes, in the in I the saw scenes. Him, uh, yeah, I looked up a little clip of him uh, from As Good as It Gets, which I never saw, but in it he plays like just a really good guy who's like someone who brings relief to other people, and it's just a voice that you want to hear. Which um, I have to assume is, that's how people there that was their experience of him in life, and so they were they wanted to kind of put it in the movie. I think it was. He was very generous with his time and with his voice off camera. You know, there's so many actors and comedians that you don't know what they even sound like. You Maybe you'll hear them on The Tonight Show, and that's about it. But Ramis was, um, he did so many interviews and long-form stuff, you know, like yeah. hour-long interviews and things like that. And he wasn't stingy at all. And And through all that, you do get a really good sense of his personality and i think a lot of his contemporaries and he is a very he seems like a really wise and kind person who gave a shit i was uh, actually watching in a couple of interviews in preparation for this with him uh and he was talking about a general philosophy that he he does say he didn't read much but he got it from a gestalt philosophy um where he said i'm just embarrassed by the self-indulgence of saying why me and everything's so terrible why not me? Every someone's got to suffer. It's <laughs> a great way of looking at life. Like, man, all right, I'm not going to stress about this. Like, it's a very, is isn't that a very Jewish way to look at it too? It is. It is. It's interesting because he's not particularly Jewish in his comedy on the surface. Like, he's not doing a Jackie Mason. Um, no. but it's very Jewish in the philosophy. Of of sort of uh, which I guess meshes well with the Canadian sort of uh, comedy aesthetic of like just don't get too big, all right? We're all gonna die. Let's just relax. We're all suffering. Um, well, he although he ran with Canadians, but he was not a Canadian. No, he was not a. Canadian. I forget. I forget. I'm saying the Jewishness maybe tied to the can- can- Canadianness. Well, they're both funny and kind. But let's Thank not get you. into stereotypes. <laughs> no, I didn't say you're, you're kind. Calls. I said no, I Jewish I'm people are kind. I didn't, yes, I didn't I single it. you out. No, I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying I wasn't talking about you in particular I understand. at that you're moment. Not, you're not saying I'm not, but you're not saying I am. Uh, to circle back, um, yeah. Talk me through Club Paradise if you if you love it so much. Because I why would I why would I torture my audience like that, especially this late in the broadcast? It's a Ramus. Uh, uh, I don't know review. <laughs> what would you call this? You, I want to hear what you think. I li- I love it because it's got a lot of great little. I like it for the same reasons I like 1941. 
It's got it a bunch of SCTV guys in it who have a bunch of funny beats. The whole thing's too unwieldy, and it falls apart by the end. It's too grand. It's like this whole revolution, and then you got Peter O'Toole coming to save the day on a white horse <laughs> so on the beat. Weird. It's just it's and everybody's way armed too much. And nobody shoots each other. It's like a fairy tale. I but, know. It's a sketch. It's a bloated sketch. But where else can you get Brian Doyle Murray and Robin Duke in a movie together? Well, it's interesting. That <laughs> the pairing we've all been waiting for. But let me, <laughs> let me just... They don't appear on screen together, they though. Don't. That's it. really the problem with the movie. Where's the Duke-Doyle Murray scene? <laughs> You've they, always maintained that since yesterday. Oh, oh exactly. Oh, what are they? This is an error. What are you leaving money on the table? This is crazy. Um, but yeah, this, Ramis but, realized after he's done, he realized, oh, no, I've done oh, it again. I didn't do first my Chevy with, Chase Bill Murray scene. First Where's with Chase and, Duke and Ryan Doyle Murray? <laughs> uh, but it's interesting you should bring up uh, Brian Doyle Murray because he's obviously in almost all of Ramis's films. In that movie... It is so tonally all over the place in terms of just Andrew Martin's performance and, you know, and Robin Williams, who's the, as, you know, Bill Murray and, and John Cleese were supposed to be in it. And I really wonder what that movie would have been because he would have just let them both run. And I think he might have had a great comedy in that. But it's like sort of playing outside the right type for Robin Williams. He's not playing a crazy guy. And... Peter O'Toole is like a, a good fill-in, but he's not as you know he's not the comedy power hitter that uh, that um, that Cleese would Please. be, in, obviously. Yeah. Although he's uh, still amazing in it, but um, it just doesn't match. So, but if I you think Cleese that, decided that it, Cleese decided that in one lifetime he could either do Rat Race or Club Paradise, but not both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I respect that choice. You know, Rat Race <laughs> is so Rat Race is one of the all-time worst. Um, but uh, but I guess my point is. Brian Doyle Murray is a phenomena in this movie. He kills it in every scene he's in. And it's very subtle and it's perfect mm -hmm. Brian Doyle Murray. And he's just like, he's kind of not playing the part that's written. Like the part that's written is supposed to be kind of a, a Ted Knight-ish kind of snobby villain who's, who's plotting against everybody. And right. he, he plays this kind of... He's obviously playing a sleaze, but it's this low-key, kind of just casual, Not doesn't have that maliciousness. As a matter of fact, at yeah. the end, when he's kicking it around with the Sheik and the other guy, they're just sort of like, you know what? Why don't, why, why don't we just bag this? Let's just forget about this. Why, why are we it's, hanging around? Like, let's it's just go so and, throwaway. We're, we're like billionaires. Let's just go do some other evil thing. It's just so great. Ramis said that he gave, he insisted that Robin Williams do at least one take on script and then he could go wherever he wanted. What? Where? Where is that in as the movie? Got, Where is Robin Williams doing Robin Williams in the movie? He's doing little asides. I mean, he's charming. That's what it is. It's mostly the cue decides. I don't, why, why are you doing that? Like, I mean, I guess it's, the, it's structurally the, the, the problem conceptually that movie is he should be the kooky guy. And He's the straight man to all the other people. I do love the Rick Moranis <laughs> lost at sea on the, what is it called? A windboard? What, what are those things called? Yeah, yeah, the um, windsurfer. Windsurfer, yeah. Yeah, that's a nice moment. But I don't know. Also, a side note, uh, uh, Andrea Martin, what a sport. Just like d doing yeah. 
nude scenes and she's got a giant snake on her and she's because she's yeah. definitely was i don't know i have and a feeling that there were some very paraglided stunts because she's doing some of that paragliding stuff yeah i think she did she talked about it on letterman and i think it was low budget enough that that ramus might have just <laughs> been like yeah just do it um oh side note brian Dahl murray of course wrote for sctv Oh, interesting, but he wasn't in it that much, or no, was he? not at all. He yeah. didn't appear. I don't think Brian Murray ever appeared, no, but he wrote. He wrote a bunch of stuff, particularly... He's good I in think, almost everything you ever see him in. I agree. Well, he plays small, sweet roles that are just right for him. Like, he's in vacation for, like, a second, and he's really good. He's in... He's He has cameos in so many movies where he's really good. I, I wish he did more. FYI, talking about side characters, there's a guy, um, let's see what his name is, in Club Paradise, who's in all of Ramus's, or almost all of Ramus's films. Um, really? The guy who plays Randy. Oh, Stephen Campman. Oh, Steve Campman. Yeah, he's Second City guy. I, I figured he had to be, because he's kind of stands out. <laughs> and I think he's well, actually better in... He was also in Stuart Smalley, and he's better in all the other things. And he's good as an angry guy, so maybe it's in the script. But I'm kind of like, why are all these heavy hitters and then this guy? Yeah, he was a Second City main stage favorite. And, uh, yep, he came out of that gang. And he's a writer, too. Yes. He played um, Andrew's husband in, in Club Paradise. He's really good in that. So what's the, I mean, I have a Stuart Smalley, uh, um, um, I don't know if it's digression or offshoot uh, exit okay, ramp Okay, hey, also. we got we to wrap it up. So let's talk Stuart Smalley and then we'll get out of here. I had only seen pieces of it and I saw it yesterday and it really affected me. Maybe it's because I come from a totally dysfunctional family, but it's, <laughs> I think it's one of his best films, like top three. I mean, it'd be tough to call because there's so many giants in there. But you're talking, of course, about Stuart saves his family. Stuart saves his family. So you have this ridiculous giant SNL character. Al Franken plays it grounded somehow. The he does. interaction with the family is is I think part of the reason I sort of always avoid it is like I don't buy this. They're just inorganically cramming Stuart Smalley into this family. Based on the, the the past footage of the family and him as the little fat kid and everything, it just works. Yeah. And it's so sweet. And you buy the progression of this family slowly evolving. And it lands in a way where nobody... Like, the father's still going to be a, a drunken asshole. Like, they don't solve the problems. This The the move at the end is they've he's come slightly farther, farther with his siblings. It's so beautiful. You're right. The fa- Everybody, it does, there's not a neat package. There's not a tidy bow at the end. You're right. The dad remains dysfunctional. The brother comes around. But ultimately, his fa- he tries to save his family, and, and you can't, that's part of the message is you can't save your family. Right, um, and but Stewart yeah. does come Isn't out a little a crazy, healthier. A crazy message it, for a Hollywood movie <laughs> that it's like the point is the classic um, self help thing of you know don't don't try to save people, just help yourself, and that will help them. I think only a, a, a director with as much courage and wisdom as Ramus can go after that movie with the kind of sincerity that he did, because it could have turned into a very cartoony affair. I think that's like one say. of, 
the strengths of Ramus now that we're talking about it is, and I think you look at the Chevy Chase Bill Murray scene. You look at some of the greatest scenes in his in his and the and the Brian Doyle Murray scenes in Club Paradise. Like even in the ones that are misses, one of his great strengths is the confidence as a director to hold on scenes and not push it somewhere it doesn't have to go. Just let the scene between those two people play out. Yeah. That's what Second City training does for people. That's true. I'm getting the high sign. Hey, Secunds, you you know how um, uh, blowing up celebrities is a mainstay on SCTV? Yes. Will you blow up for us? I have um, a little bit of a, uh, an ankle issue, a weak ankle. Is it going to affect that, or is it going to be kind of like... I'll blow up and then my my ankle will be okay. It's like you know, money. No, you'll be obliterated completely. <laughs> oh, so, so I won't your have to ankle, worry about my ankle at all. No, no, your ankle won't be an issue anymore ever again. Can I pimp you into a doing a? Um, can you do a line from a Ramus movie? Please. Do a, a, an interp. Do it. Do an oral interp, and we'll blow you up right right as you as the speech peaks. Okay. Here's Andrew Secunda with a line read from a movie by the great Harold Ramis. Okay, here we go. I don't know what kind of soldier I'm going to make, but I want you guys to know that if we ever get into really heavy combat, I'll be right behind you guys every step of the way. That was the great Andrew Secunda giving us a read from Stripes. That's, um, That's our show for today, everybody. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Michael Delaney. I'd like to thank Brendan Sokler, Chad Kruger, and Steve Mecca for helping me out, for co-hosting, and for engineering this show. So that's our show for today. As always, may the good Lord take a liking to you and blow you up real soon. SCTV now concludes its programming day. But first, words to live by with Dr. Bradley Omar, Universal Church of Science. Good evening. In the face of ever-increasing threats from our enemies abroad, where can we Americans look for the strength and courage to go on? Where can we look for the intelligence and know-how to oppose an enemy that has just now launched a Sputnik into space? Where can we look today, in 1957, to guarantee that we don't wake up one morning and find that all our street signs are printed in Mongolian? There's only one place to look. Look to the skies. For there in the skies, Americans will meet aliens, different in appearance from us, but similar in their desire for freedom from oppression. There will, of course, be some bad aliens. Some of them may even be mutants. They will have bombs more powerful than our A-bomb. But if we put our hope into research and development and our faith into a strong, offensive space arsenal, we may just have a chance. So watch the skies, my friends. Our way of life may depend on it. Ridiculous. What's he talking about? That guy's a dumb asteroid. Yeah, he's nuts. Yeah. <laughs>